I'm Spun Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by. Before we get back by the woodpile on this episode, I wanted to let you all know that I was a guest on another program recently called the Catacombs Podcast. It's a series hosted by two cool guys named Jay and Josh who talk about issues that relate to faith and overcoming cynicism. I had actually went over to their literal basement in East Nashville to interview them, but they flipped the tables on me and ended up asking me about my own weird life. It was great fun discussing stuff like recognizing the greatness in others, trying to get back to Eden, creating our own crosses to bear, Frederick Douglass, Abraham Lincoln, Bernie Sanders, Zimbabwe, China, record stores, and the wisdom of Shimmy Skywalker, among other stuffs. So check out the Catacombs podcast, episode 23, if you want to hear all that. But now, my guest back by the woodpile today is Reverend Marvin Hightower, a minister, singer, and writer of a few books, one of which is called Overcoming Identity Crisis. We use the book as a springboard to talk about all kinds of issues, such as finding our true purposes, putting other people's agendas ahead of our own destinies, the wild goose chase that pride gets us off on, getting out when the getting is good, and how Mr. Hightower's mother tried to kill him twice. The foundation is when Jesus, when he was born, it was announced who he was. So his mother's teaching him all along uh, her experience. When he's 12 years old, it seems like he knows who he is because he says, I must be about my father's business. When his mom finds him in the temple with the lawyers and doctors and lawyers. So it seemed like he knew who he was, I mean, for sure. And then when he's getting baptized, the father actually speaks. He has a supernatural experience where the father affirms who he is. But yet, when the enemy takes him into the wilderness to tempt him, temptation, by definition, means that there's something in you that is drawn to what is being presented. So, it to be a legitimate temptation, it has to be something that appeals to you, that uh, really appeals to your flesh in some way. So, the area that the enemy came at Jesus is, if you be the Son of God, then prove it. So, there had to be something in him for whatever millisecond or whatever that entertain this idea am i really the son of god that and should i do i need to prove it so the concept is that if jesus went through that time when the enemy attacked him at his identity then it stands to reason that the body of christ would be attacked in the area of who they are and in, in their their true identity who who they are supposed to be who they were created to be now you said the body of the church but as individuals, how would you define what an individual's identity is? I think a lot of factors go, go into who, who you are. But I think that there's a God reason for every life. And I think that that is the true identity that you were created. In other words, if you want to know the reason for something, you go to the person who, who made it. You know, it can look like a chair, but it, it might be a bed. Uh, you know, in his mind, because it may be has a function as a bed. But if you don't know the reason for something, you don't know the purpose for something, then abuse is inevitable. Mm -hmm. And that's the whole premise that if you don't know who you are, if I if you don't know who you are, I can tell you who you are and I can give you your identity. And that's the horror of molestation. Pervert don't mean crazy word. It just means not being used for its original intent. Mm -hmm. 
So when I say if I'm a pervert, if I'm not using my life for its original intent, then I'm perverting it. Mm -hmm. And so what I'm saying is I can take a child and I can raise it to be an axe murderer and I can raise it to think that it can be a senator. I can be in that in any way I want to. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's some things that are necessary. I mean, he has to have the intelligence and stuff. That's genetic. Some stuff is genetic. Some stuff is environmental. Uh, and those things are inherent in us. But I can basically train up a child in any way I want him to go, basically. And he can he can be a child molester, mm -hmm. just like me molesting him. Mm -hmm. And that's what happens. That that's Child molestation is perpetuated because somebody was uh, sexually abused. Right. And then the abuser, the abused, becomes the abuser. Do you think that, okay, say that you decide, okay, I'm going to raise my kids right, and I want this son to be a pastor, I want this uh, daughter to be a doctor. Could that even be a perversion? Yeah, I think so. Because in, there's a scripture that says, Paul says, at the end of his life, and I, and I teach this, and I, and I love this teaching, that Paul says at the end of his life, I have fought a good fight. I've kept the faith. And then he says this, and I know the King James, and it's, it's, it's actually in italic, which means that it was not in the original. But I believe it's there for a reason. He says, I have finished my course. He didn't say I finished a course, because a course would infer that there are different courses. That, you know, you can just find a course, and you, as long as you finish it, everything's fine. And he didn't say, I have finished the course, which would infer that there's the same course for everybody. Okay, there's the course that you have to find, and everybody get in this course. He said, I've finished my course. And my thing is that I believe that every one of us have our own personal, my course. Mm -hmm. And so your thing is not to try to raise a kid up to be a doctor or whatever. I think that's a perversion. You see people to try to keep people in, their, in the family business. Mm -hmm. he, he wants to be a doctor, but his dad is a farmer. And they come from a long line of farmers. You got to keep the family business. That's a perverted love to me. Because love wants you to be the best you can be and to excel. It's, it's no skin off my nose. It's no shame for me, for my daughters. And every one of my daughters did. They went farther in education than I did. But there are parents that have a perverted love. They want to keep their kid at home. They want to protect them from the world. They want to protect them from learning. Anything. It's their fear. It's not the kid's fear. It's their fear. So, yeah, there is a perversion in trying to raise up a kid to be a doctor. I'm just saying that it's possible to do that. Mm -hmm. You don't want to do that. You want to raise a kid up that he seeks God, that whatever his course is, that he, he's seeking God to find his own personal my course. If any parents are listening to this, say the kid maybe has no ambition and they're trying to push something, and they're trying to help, you know, mm -hmm. how would you advise a parent to, to help encourage a child without, you know, trying to, like, like you say, pervert or push them in, in a direction that they're not, that God, maybe God doesn't want them to be in. Jesus at the hardest places in his life received affirmation from his father. When he was being baptized, he was getting ready to start his earthly ministry. He was going to get ready to be betrayed, everything. His father speaks out of heaven. When he's getting ready to go to the cross and uh, he goes to this mount of transfiguration, the father speaks out of heaven to affirm him. At the hardest times in his life, the father affirmed him, which gave him courage, gave him the motivation to continue on toward his destiny. He knew what his destiny was, and it was hard on his flesh. It was hard. He didn't want to do it. He said, let this cup pass from me. So what I'm, what I'm saying is that you, you, affirm, you affirm that child. You let them know 
that you love them, that you support them. You know what I'm saying? You mm -hmm. affirm him. I go back to if Jesus needed it and uh, had it, then it's probably something that's necessary to every person for them to be the best that they can be. And instead of trying to direct them or trying to, I mean, you encourage them to do the right things, but, uh, you know, to, to do necessary things, but affirm them and let them know that they can be whoever. Because I was pretty smart, you know, but I didn't have any kind of home encouragement. You know, I, I made excellent grades until I got up and got in the streets, you know, and it wasn't cool to be too smart, you know. English was my best subject. Even though I didn't try, I would study for the test right before class and make a A, you know, and stuff like that. Other things probably took would take more time, but I had the skills to do it, but I was not encouraged. So I went to college, didn't stay. Sometimes I think if I had a mother like my wife is to my daughters, because I, we have three daughters who have masters or equivalent, only one that went to school and didn't finish. And they so, became their own person. They became their own person, encouraging them, but not controlling them. And for God's sake, don't try to, don't try to shape them in your image. That's a perverted love. It really is. a. We think I'm loving them. I'm protecting them. You're not. You, you are more concerned about you because you're concerned about the family business. And this kid want to be a doctor. And you're saying that he has to, to deny his knowledge. He has to deny his abilities to satisfy your legacy or whatever you want for, you know, for his future. Maybe there's a distinction between what you're saying identity is and how we're created in the image of God, or maybe it's the same thing. There was a, a, a theologian, uh, N.T. Wright, he's still alive, in fact. I, I heard him mention, because he was talking about, uh, I think in America, of the crime and like the, the, all this, the pop culture that tells you to do what you want, feel good. Yeah. And he was saying, that it's, look what it's done. It, it's twisted the image of God, and, exactly. and it's really shortchanged us. Do you see that as kind of the same yeah. thing? Yeah, that's part of the point is that you are created in the image of God. But life, and life happens to everybody, life has a way of trying to shape you in its image. And most of the time, that image is an is a image that's separated from God nothing is black and white uh nothing is male and female nothing is this and that open your mind up and you search out you go through hell don't let your parents tell you it hell ain't good you go through hell and find out you might like hell you know what i'm saying it's just i mean that, that's, <laughs> well, that's that's your i laugh at you're right yeah it is i mean you, it's that, you just because everything's like upside hell, down yeah yeah and uh <laughs> but we were created in the image of god but most life experiences whether it's the death of a loved one, the uh, death of a baby, maybe you were forced into an abortion, maybe you were molested. One out of four women were molested. What, two out of four women had an abortion. So you have all this baggage that's designed, and then you have church teaching guilt and shame and condemnation. And so it's trying to shape you in the image away from God. And you grew up like I did without a father. Then how can you trust this heavenly father? What, are you going to lead me to? You know what I'm saying? When I need him most. 
And then you have experiences where you need God and it doesn't look like he show up when you think he does because that's not how he operates. You know, he has a principle. He has ways he does things. And we think, well, God didn't show up for me. And there are people mad at God and say, I don't believe in God because my mama was dying. And I cried out to him out of my heart and I really sought him and I really prayed and he didn't show up. There's no God. I don't believe in God. And so you have all these life experiences that are designed to bend you away from God, not toward God. Parents ought to help you kind of bend you toward God. They can't be God. They can't make decisions for you, but they can can show you through their life and through their worship and stuff. So identity crisis is life shaping you in, in an image to make you doubt who you were created to be and, and the image of God in you that, you know, there is no God or God is not concerned about you. He doesn't love you or you're unlovable or you're unnecessary. Everybody have experiences in their life that will make them doubt the existence of God. I mean, or if God is concerned about, it. maybe I know there's a God, but I don't know he cares about me. You know what I'm saying? I don't know that I'm worthy of it. I don't know that I can believe that he would even want me. Yeah, a lot of churches almost preach that, whether they yeah, realize it or not. They do. And a lot of churches teach that if you're good, then God accepts you, and if you're not. And then if that's true, he don't accept anybody because there's nobody good. There's only one that's good. And it's ridiculous, but that's the power of religion. Religion will cause you to judge yourself by your intentions and judge everybody else by what they do mm-hmm. when you're doing the exact same thing. We we were counseling, the, the, talking, my wife and I was talking to a guy that was doing some crazy stuff. And then, you know, and he had the nerve to say, well, you know, these people that do this, what he did, uh, he said, I'm not like this. And my wife just, out of, you know, just, just said, you say, you are this. I mean, you are them. What are you talking about? I'm not like them. You are them. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? And we, and you are them. You, you are human. Nobody ever sees themselves as them. No. And it's amazing to me. That's one thing I have politically is that when people support somebody, they support them blindly. They support them unconditionally. And, and it's no right or wrong. It, it's like, uh, well, and they excuse it. And my thing is, be fair, be honest, be Christian about it. You know what I'm saying? Right. Say I support him, and I'm going to support her. I'm going to be with her. But what she said was ignorant, or what she did was not right. Mm-hmm. But I just made a choice to support them. Instead, no, well, no, uh, you don't know they're it. There's one thing to make an excuse for somebody, but I think it's another thing when you reshift your uh, um, belief system exactly. to accommodate the, and that the person in that this- you've... This America. You've made an idol out of that person. Exactly. Yeah. I know we're getting off the subject. Yeah. There, but... You talk about how when people try to prove themselves that ends up distorting their identity or ends up distracting them from their identity? Well, no, what I, what I say is that when you know who you are, mm-hmm. there's no pressure to prove who you are. But when you don't know who you are, you know, it's like the tough guy on the yard. He has to prove he's tough because in his mind, people don't, don't know how tough he is. You know what I'm saying? Bruce Lee never went into a bar and talked about how I can whoop everybody in this bar because he knew he could. Right. He tried to avoid fights because he didn't want to hurt anybody. 
because he knew he could whip anybody. You know what I'm saying? And but when you know who you are and you're secure in who you are, then you don't have to. You don't. There's no pressure to prove who you are. Mm -hmm. But when you doubt who you are, then you feel the pressure to prove who you are. I got to prove I'm good enough. I got to prove I'm worthy. I got to prove I'm talented enough. I got to. I got to prove it. And it's because of your insecurities and your and your self doubts. If you don't mind, like from your own life, do you, do you remember a time when you were trying to prove yourself to others? That... Yeah, every Sunday morning. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, so it never you never get rid of it. You never completely. Yeah, in, in some ways, because there was a time, and I can't really pinpoint it, that the fear left me. Because I used to, for years, I've been pastoring 35 years. I've been in the ministry 37 years. And I would, people ask me to come speak, and I would take the date, and then I would beat myself up. Why did you take that? What are you going to say? You don't got nothing to say. What are you doing? And I would be so intense. You know, my wife couldn't say anything to me. What do you think we need to? I, hey, I, I got to preach. I, I got to speak. You know, I got to preach about love. Now, yeah, leave me alone. <laughs> yeah. At, at some point, and it may have been when I was diagnosed with prostate cancer that I realized that all that unnecessary fear and wearing crap not that i don't still uh, you know have moments and stuff but it's like it's not that important i mean what if they don't like you so what i mean it's not going to take anything away from your life well someone in your defense when you have a church it, it is partially a business and sure you, you have to worry about that a little bit well you you have to be concerned you have to be concerned about who shows up who's not the, i mean that, yeah. that never goes away because because that's weekly you know what I'm saying? But I'm saying that, that you don't have to feel like you're being judged every message mm. because you you can have confidence that God called me to do this and I'm doing what he's and he's responsible for the results. I put in the time, I put in the work, you know, and I hopefully hear from him uh, to tell people something. And you get up there in the confidence that it, it, he's going to have to do it anyway, because there were times when I felt like this is a great message and, you know, they're going to love it. And get up there and, and lay an egg. And get up and then I get up there. I mean, this they're gonna be running the aisles, running into the walls and everything. I mean, they're gonna be pulling out their hair. This is great. I get up there and uh thank gosh, Lord, I didn't spend enough time. I don't even know how this is gonna come out, Lord. And and it, man, great past bad past oh, that spoke to me, spoke to my family, blah, blah, blah. And and so I got to the place where I said, Okay. And there were times when I thought I'm gonna sing. I'm in voice. <laughs> Somebody's going to be blessed today and and get up there and my voice just leaves me. And uh, then get up there thinking, God, I'm so, and I get up there and say it. I said, uh, man, I've been struggling. My, you know, science is draining and I don't have the voice and get up there and be, oh, I finally realized, listen, I never get up there in the confidence in my flesh. And I always let him know that I'm relying on him for the outcome. So that's that's how I do it. No matter if I think I got some, if I don't think I got some, I rely on him and I pray and I ask him for his help every time, whether I'm gonna sing or whether whether I'm gonna speak. So I mean, I never get up there in the confidence in my flesh. I always rely on him. This may be a, a silly question, but do you ever fantasize about being like one of the prophets from the Old Testament or one of these street preachers? Where they don't have to worry about the audience whatsoever. They they're just in their minds speaking the the pure truth and letting the cards fall where they, fall where they may. Yeah. No, I've never thought of it in, in that sense. Your congregation is fairly open to hard truths, you think? Yeah, because they wouldn't come here. But we we preach grace. We preach against condemnation, guilt, and shame. I got a, I got a song that, that's called No More Shame. Mm -hmm. 
and the words are condemnation, guilt, and shame. In my life, once had free reign. But, you have a video for that on the YouTube? Yeah, yeah, I watched so, it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Nice. Uh, no more shame. Uh, we preach grace. Mm-hmm. I mean, really heavy. But we also preach that uh, the only evidence of a new birth is a new life. Mm-hmm. But you've lost some people in the past or over time that got offended or just. Yeah, I, I had one lady get offended because uh, I, I may have told you this, but I wasn't really teaching against welfare. Mm-hmm. I was just saying welfare is not the best and that God wants to bless you to live beyond welfare. And this woman, he's trying to take my check. I ain't going back out there. These folks are crazy. <laughs> Come back. Wow. Shh. My check. He always teach that God wants to to bless you to be a blessing. And you can't be a blessing if you're on a fixed income that, that the government tells you how much you're going to receive. You know what I'm saying? You have to live within those limits. I've lost people I don't even know why I lost. I mean, they just left mad. You know what I'm saying? And and there are people that you you love, you help, you give money to. You travel miles to uh, their funerals and and uh, weddings and all that stuff, and they leave, and and you don't even know why, and they don't feel a need to tell you why. Can I read a quote from your book? Sure, yeah. Okay. When a man feels inadequate, he will begin to doubt his success as a man, husband, father, provider, etc. And I don't. So I want you to speak on insecurity, which I suffer from. Yeah, I uh, think we all do. And when I speak, sometimes I get up in a church I've never been in before, and I get up and say, "I say I know what you're thinking. See if I'm right." And of course, they were waiting to say, "I said you're thinking." That's the best-looking black man I've ever seen in my life. And they just bust out laughing. But I talk about that all the time because I've been insecure about my looks all my life. And I think control and manipulation and uh, the Jezebel spirit and all these things, that perfectionism, all those things are based in fear and insecurity. You, you try to control everything because a lot of times things happen in your life that was beyond your control. Explain how destructive insecurity can be. Fear just stops the pipeline to God. You know what I'm saying? It stops the flow of life. It stops the flow of of thought. I, I notice when I'm not afraid that I can say things that I don't even have in my notes that's relevant to the congregation because of how the Spirit of God is leading and you know how, how it's flowing. When you're in fear, you're trying to get through your notes. It just cuts off the flow. And I've dealt with insecurity all my life because of how it rained. My mom was my number one fan. But when we were growing up, she wasn't in church. I wasn't in church. And she was 16 when she got pregnant, 17 when when I was born, and tried to abort me and all that stuff. But she was very, very critical. She called me evil. You're an evil thing. And so I had a major anger problem that was based in insecurity. Anger is manifested hurt. It's what I tell people at, at the prison. I say, you're not tough, you're just hurt. And when you're trying to prove your toughness, it's because you're hurt. And when you say, I don't need anybody, what you're basically saying is, I never had anybody. Because if you had somebody, you'll know, I needed them. But when you had nobody, you have to create this persona that I don't need anybody. And so all this vibrata and all this boasting and all this stuff comes from insecurity. You don't think you're good enough or you don't think you accept it. And I don't think that there's a father 
especially when you your kids get older and you see their life choices, that you don't wonder, what did they see in me that they would even think about dating somebody like that? You know what I'm saying? Like your daughter. Or, you know, why aren't they married? What kind of example was I, you know, that they would accept stuff that they accept? But do you recognize that some people's insecurities cause them to achieve a lot and maybe overachieve. Yeah. I think most successful people uh, that you, when you get yeah, them to be honest, they'll tell you, I'm, I'm a scared little kid. Yeah. Still. That's uh, Mike Murdoch. He's known for his wisdom. He's got the wisdom center, uh, wrote books on wisdom and everybody looks to him for wisdom. He does churches, uh, mega churches. He does businesses and they look to him to wisdom. He's, they said, why are you so into wisdom? He said, "Cause I've been so stupid. <laughs> I made a lot of stupid mistakes, and yeah. I think that's I think that's it. Yeah. I think people that had nothing, grew up with nothing, they either accept I'm not going to have anything, or they determine. But it's like people that were abused. You think the last thing that they would want to be is somebody that abused people, mm-hmm. and but there are there are people that are asexual because they were abused. You know what I'm saying? That's true. That people their insecurities drive them to." Uh, either accept what was and give into it and allow it to dominate their life or the anti that they do the anti that well, my mama had none my dad had none and it's not going to happen to me and they achieve and they do what they have to do and they overachieve and they don't have time for their families they don't have time for the kids they don't even have kids they uh, adopt somebody else's kid i mean they <laughs> just call the neighbor's kid theirs because they ain't got time Either way, though, it's not good for you. You know what I'm saying? Even if it drives you to success, you've sacrificed family. You've sacrificed love. You know what I'm saying? You've sacrificed life trying to prove to everybody that you can be successful or trying to prove to yourself that you're worthy. So either way, it's destructive. It, it's it's not good. Whether it keeps you in bondage or drives you to do certain things beyond what's right, what's good for you. In the book, you make a little bit of a distinction that men and women have identity crises differently. Women need love. Men need respect. And uh, men spell love, uh, R-E-S-P-E-C-T. <laughs> women spell love, L-O-V-E. And so respect is of the utmost importance to the man. If a man doesn't have respect, really, he doesn't, I, I think... In a lot of ways, he feels like he's he has nothing. That's why gangs are so successful. You know what I'm saying? Because they tell you, we're going to make people respect you. And, and that's why guns are so in demand, because people are trying to demand respect. The Bible teaches each to give the other what they need. In other words, it tells the man, love your wife like Christ loved the church. And it tells the, the woman to honor your husband, respect the husband. Because if you respect that man the way he needs to be respected, then love is the result he's gonna he's gonna gush with love and when you love that woman then she's gonna respect you but a lot of times we have this standoff where she's not respecting me and a lot of men you ask them do you think do you feel like your wife loves you they say yeah you think she respects you well i don't don't know i think in some ways she respects but love is no question yes she loves me does she respect you maybe no no a lot of them will say no because Women think he needs to earn respect and he's not doing things the way I want him. So he's not getting respected. But you don't you don't respect people based only on what they do. You respect their position. You respect their office. You respect him because he's your husband. 
My daughters respect me because I'm their dad, not because I've been perfect. You respect me because I'm your pastor, not because I made every decision right in the church. And there's a way to disagree with your husband. If he's your husband, then according to the Bible, he's the head of the home. And you can't just tell him what you want to tell him, how you want to tell him, just because you disagree or you even think he's wrong or you know he's wrong. There's a way. In the army, there's protocol. A sergeant, you, you can't talk any kind of way to a general. I don't care what he did. I don't care how wrong he is. There's a way to do that. And I think the Bible teaches that because they know a man needs needs that respect and a woman needs that love. And instead, if you just do what you're called to do, if you just love that woman the way, it's going to draw respect out of her. And if that woman will respect him like he's supposed to be respected, it's going to draw love out of him. But when you think, well, he's not earning my respect and you, she's not loving me the way she's supposed to love me and blah, blah, blah. And then you, you're going to have what we have. Right. <laughs> Divorce. Yeah. Condemnation, guilt, and shame In my life once had free reign But in your love you favored me Now I know I can be free No looking back to what it used to be I declare in Jesus' name, no more shame. It seems like where we live, there's two different pulls. There's the, the culture at large, which wants to take out the gender or feminize everything. Yeah. The, then there's the traditional culture here in small town where you're either a, you know, a redneck or a thug. I would say men are pulled between the two. That's why your self-identity is so important because you won't be shaped in somebody else's image. When you're secure in who you are or who you're created to be, then nobody can shape you in their image and nobody can tell you that to be a black man is to be a thug. Hmm. No, something interesting happened with my wife. She's working where she was working and she was working. She's only black there. Of course, she's intelligent, articulate. And this woman thought she was giving her a compliment. She said, she said it's, uh, it's, just, it's like you're not even black. Oh, man. And what she it's was terrible. saying is that you don't fit the stereotype. She said, I am black. Uh -huh. She said, you just don't know any black people. You're just going by what the television said. Mm -hmm. You're going by the image that has been propagated. But she's securing who she is. That's why it's so important to know who you were created to be mm -hmm. in God, who you were created to be in life, what your function is, what your purpose is in life. Kids are growing up without fathers, someone without their mother, their mother's on meth, their dad is, never was there. And so you have this culture that is going through this major identity crisis, and then you have this culture that's trying to politicize everything, even the family to to birth, to to uh, schools, to I mean, to every aspect of life, and trying to shape it in its image because they want the world to be a certain way, and that does not include God or any kind of black and white or any kind of principles there's no principles there's no right or wrong there's no there's nothing they would say because i try to look at the viewpoint of everybody <laughs> if you really want to understand folks they would say that christianity and religion in general is oppressive it confuses people it takes away their identity and so they're out there saying we're trying to create a world where anybody can be what they want to be without being judged do you agree but, with but that? That, no because they're not they're trying to create a world where people are doing what they want them to do in other words, okay, if you want me to be anything I want to be, why is being a Christian being wrong? They're trying to create a world where you agree with what they agree. If you don't agree with what they 
their agenda, then they ostracize you and they and they attack you and they make you feel like you're bigoted, you're narrow minded, you're wrong. And if you don't agree with us, then there's something wrong with you. And so religion, there's something wrong with religion. And real religion is freeing, is liberating. Real religion sets you free. And from what? From to liberate you from trying to live in somebody else's image, to try to prove yourself to somebody. Christianity is in its truest form is not oppressive. It is is liberating. told me this story before but I think it's relevant to tell on this episode how your mom tried to kill you twice mm -hmm. how did that affect your identity I think it affected how she interacted with me when my mom she was 16 when she got pregnant with me and obviously she didn't know who the dad was because when when I was born she named the wrong guys my dad on the day that I was being ordained uh -huh. and and assigned to church she saw man I tried to kill this baby and he's a pastor he's a preacher he's you know, God had a plan for his life. And so it, it oh, that's why she felt a need to tell me. But anyway, she was 16 and unmarried, poor, uh, still living at home in school. So she decided to uh, have an abortion. Or I think her sister took her. So she went across state lines because abortion was illegal in those days. And she actually laid on the table, went through the process and the procedure of having abortion. And uh, she's thinking the pregnancy is terminated. She can get back to her life, go back to school, whatever. But sometimes later, she felt life still growing on the inside of her. She decided to go back again. You know, you botched this. And, uh, uh, it didn't take. Still, yeah, it didn't take. So <laughs> so she laid on the table again, and he performed an abortion on her again. And yet I was uh, born healthy and whole. I, I didn't know till I was uh, I was being assigned to church at age 28. So I didn't know until I was 28 that she tried to abort me. I think it impacted how she interacted with me. So I think it did influence my identity crisis. But uh, but I think more so with how I grew up in a single parent home. We were bootleggers. We had parties. I seen married people hook up uh, with other people. I've seen all kind of stuff, you know, happening around me. I'd wake up with a stranger in my bed. You know, I mean, just uh, crazy stuff. And that's just how I live. And then, like I said, my mom was was very critical. She would talk about how evil I was. Like I said, I had a lot of hurt. Mm -hmm. So hurt is manifested in anger. So I think uh, just being hurt, we were very, very poor. So uh, you're embarrassed to bring people over to your house uh, a lot of times, and especially like a girl or something like that. So so I think all of that in, uh, added to my insecurities. Her, her talking to me, they say when you are raised with criticism, you learn how to condemn, you know, you, and basically you condemn yourself because you, you, you start believing what people say about you and you start living up or down to it. Mm. That's why I say it's important for parents to affirm their children because they would give their life trying to prove you're right. You know what I'm saying? Mm. But at the same time, a, a kid will destroy themselves trying to prove you're right too. You know, if you call them evil and you call them bad and you just like your daddy, and and you can you'll never be nothing. That stuff will resonate with them, and it will 
it will echo in their ears for a lot of their life until they have some kind of life-changing encounter they will they will become this self-fulfilling prophecy just when i need your strength to carry everybody is, is born with a purpose. I think everybody's created with a purpose. You know, people say, well, you say I was created with a purpose, but my mom was raped. I don't think God says, okay, I have a purpose, so I'm going to have this man rape this woman. I think God sees the result of our actions and said, and made a decision to love that I, I got a plan for that baby. Okay, that baby came. I didn't orchestrate the rape, I didn't orchestrate the backseat of a Chevy. But, but he can find beauty in the ashes. He find the beauty in the ashes, and he has a plan for that baby because that baby exists. He made a decision to love us before we even exist. And he says that in Jeremiah, before you came forth out of your mom's womb, I knew you and I planned you. And I think that's true of everybody because we think, Man, that's, isn't that wonderful? He, he said he knew Isaiah, and he said he ordained him as a prophet to the nations before he was born, before he breathed his first breath. He knew him. I think that's true of everybody. I mean, you can debate whether the, the spirit actually comes into that child at the breath because the Bible said he breathed, breathing us the breath of life and stuff. But even in that, I think that there is purpose in everybody because I know a lady that had an abortion, she was forced into it, did not want to have it. She's 16. She's crying the whole time. It was just a horrible experience. She later became uh, the abstinence teacher at Door of Hope. And she tells her story. I don't know how many babies she saved because a lot of the crisis kids, they would, uh, they would come and get her to talk to them. And she was so compelling that a lot of the girls didn't go through with the abortion. That baby, even though it never was born, helped save some lives. There was a purpose in that baby's life, even though it never it never saw the light of day. And I think that things like that happen all the time. You can either take some stuff and use it to be better, or you can take something and use it to be bitter, but it's going to impact you. Every life has a purpose. And if it's if it's an aborted baby, then you know, you can let it make you bitter, or you can cause it to motivate you to give to crisis pregnancy care centers and you know, whatever. But that baby has a purpose. It's up to you to uh, to use it. I think we're all looking for our identity. At least in my life, I would think that I found, okay, this is what I'm supposed to do. And it seemed like everything worked out for that end. Well, then something changed. And all of a sudden, everything was falling apart. I kept trying to find a way to artificially keep it going because I thought that's this was what I was supposed to do. I'll give you an example. I worked with handicapped folks for like eight years. And, mm -hmm. and I thought I was going to do that till I died. Mm -hmm because I thought I was pretty good at it, and I, I enjoyed it. But then doors closed that were out beyond my control, and there's nothing I could do, and I you know, I felt destroyed. And But 
something else came along, completely different. I, I ended up having a record store, and it felt like, oh man, this is what I was supposed to do, I guess. There was opportunity to do good in that as well, mm-hmm. even though maybe that's not what I intended to do with it. But um, So do you believe your identity can change, or, or does God's plan maybe change? Because they always say, like, well, God doesn't change. There's plenty of songs that says that. But do you think that his... His plan can change, or, yeah. or there, maybe his plan is a lot more complicated. Excuse I think me. it's way more complicated than we uh, than we understand. I teach this message about the river, the brook Cherith. He tells the prophet Elijah, "Go by the brook Cherith. There, I will, uh, I will send a raven to feed you." You are you familiar I love with the story? story? Yeah. But he's he's there, and God sent him there, and he's where God wants him. And God is supernaturally providing. Ravens don't bring you food. They, they're scavengers. They eat everything. So, But they're bringing him food. But after a while, the brook dries up. Now, church people think, God sent me here. And the brook dried up. And they would stay by that brook, just knowing God is going to revitalize the brook. But he wasn't going to revitalize the brook. It wasn't because God didn't send you there. But the brook dried up because it was time to move into a new season and a new purpose. And I always say this, that God, by that brook, Elijah was the only one being ministered to and blessed. If you're the only one being blessed by what God has you doing, then it's probably not the final outcome of what God has for you. It's training, it's preparation, but it's not It's not God's ultimate purpose because God wants to bless you to be a blessing. And so the brook dries up. Not because it wasn't God, but people died by the brook because God sent them there and it was supernatural, the things that were happening there. It doesn't mean that because the brook dried up that it wasn't God, but it doesn't mean also that you have to stay there even though the brook dried up. He says, I have a widow that's going to take care. In other words, I'm sending you from a place where you're the only one being blessed to a place where you're going to bless somebody else and they're going to bless you. I think that happens a lot. We die for a religious experience rather than a relationship. A relationship is always evolving and changing and and growing. And I think our purposes are always growing and expanding as we allow it to, you know what I'm saying? But uh, a lot of times we die for an experience. Every time God did something, they want to make a memorial. And God doesn't want a memorial. He wants a movement. Well, uh, he spoke to us here. Let's make a let's make some tabernacles for Moses and uh, and God said, "Listen, this is my son. Hear him. Don't don't stand on this mountain making a memorial. Follow this cat. This cat is going to show you some some life. You know what I'm saying? But we die for experiences. We get by a brook and we stay there just because God sent us there. And the whole thing is that if you don't move with God, you end up dying and make a memorial out of something." That was supposed to be never supposed to define you. It's supposed to be a brick in the building that God is building that that is you. But it was never meant to define your life. It was never meant to to be your all encompassing experience. And there are times when and you felt that way because for the time that it was your purpose. That happens all the time because you're in a season and seasons end. And people try to stay in that season. And you, you almost make that mistake. You try to make make it happen. Make mm-hmm. make this season extend. You know what I'm saying? I liken it to, as I look back now, because the story I just told you, I had the record shot for a few years, and then that started to fall apart. 
And I was really upset with God because I, I thought I was supposed to I do just, that. You, knew that, that you just knew it was God. That, yeah. That's some of the most but, discouraged people. Yeah. It's people that they, they will stay in a church that they're dying in just because it was their mother's church. Mm. When they need to re be refreshed, they'll visit another church that they probably should be attending. But they just, well, I'm Catholic. I can't go to a Protestant. I mean, I can't, I'm, can't, yeah. I'm Protestant. I can't. I'm Baptist. And God wants you to live for him, certainly not die for for an experience, because he has more experiences for you. That's the whole thing about about the mount. Don't make a memorial. There are more experiences. And the Jews were notorious for making monuments. And they miss God. They, they're standing there gazing when he's taken up out of their sight. They're, and no, no doubt they're thinking, man, we need to make a memorial. <laughs> <laughs> and Peter, it's admirable. I mean, the heart's in the right place, but they kind of right. miss the big picture. Yeah, yeah. But he he didn't call you to to uh, to build memorials. He wants to be a movement. Playing contrarian with you, are you prepared that maybe one day God will have a, a plan that's different from having the church? We actually shifted this year, and I've kind of stepped back, and I'm trying to uh, go into churches to different churches, making myself available on Sunday mornings where I would I would miss two Sundays uh, a year. My vacation was from Monday to Saturday. I never missed Sunday. But I would speak for a couple of friends on Sundays. But I, I couldn't miss Sunday. No, no, no. But now my wife is kind of taking over. I've kind of given the reins to her so that uh, I can go. In. There's fifteen to 2,000 pastors that quit every month. Wow. Some, of course, never were called. Others just burn out. They are good people that love God and just go through what churches go through and they don't know how to deal with it. And I want to go in churches and use my 35 years, 37 years experience and minister and encourage the people and and just hopefully say something that will God will give me something that is relevant to their kind, not just to pull out a message. This is my best message. Now, now I want to say something that's relevant to them. And so I've been doing that more lately. That, that's been a shift. It's mm -hmm. kind of changed the church. I have some people, well, he's leaving, I'm leaving too. And I, I'm not leaving the church, but there'll be Sundays when I'm not going to be here. And I feel like that I've been saying so that So you for feel years. like you've been pulled yeah, to do this? Okay. To away from the day-to-day -day pastoring, actually. I think my mother passing, it opened me up to something. I mean, it just, because I didn't, I didn't have time to grieve privately. Man, my grief was in front of the congregation. You know, I'm crying in front of the congregation. I'm telling stories. I mean, just I didn't have I didn't have the privilege of grieving privately. So all of my stuff was in front of the congregation, and maybe how I handled it was part of grief. Cause a lot of people said that I did make it sound like that I was leaving. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm through. Uh, Morris is taking over. Bye. And I, I never meant that. I meant that there would be times when I'm going to be gone. I don't have the heart for the day-to-day -day battles, 70-year-old babies, you know what I'm saying, nursing <laughs> 65, 70-year-old babies. All right. Uh, you know, yeah. uh, I'm not going. Uh, he made me mad. He offended me. I'm not going back. I'm not going to pay my time. I, don't, I just don't have the heart for it. And uh, I think God does that sometimes, not just dries up the brook. Like Hannah, I don't know if you know the story of Hannah, but she's wanted a baby, and she couldn't have one. But her husband loved her. That wasn't good enough. She wanted a baby. And uh, this woman was just teased her because she was popping out babies left and right. She was saying, uh, you know, you see my new baby? Here, come on, Hannah, hold it. And Hannah's like, great. 
And, and she finally got so frustrated and wanted to have a baby. that she, But she finally got to the place where she said, God, if you give me a baby, I'll give him back to you. The Bible says he shut up her womb until she got in a position because he always wanted, Samuel was a prophet. So God always wanted the prophet, but she couldn't have it until she got in a position where she was willing to give him back to God. God said, that's exactly where I want you. That's where you need to be for me to, to release in you what I want to. But that agitation from her adversary is what caused her to finally get to the place where she said, oh God, because if she had him out of season, she had him too soon, she probably would have doted on him, probably worshipped him, wouldn't let him out of her sight, been uh, prideful and cantankerous and contentious with, with, with Penina. But when she, but she got broken because she couldn't have one. And she finally said, God, if you give me a, a son, I'll give him back to you. And so God said, that's exactly. So I, I, I said that to say that God a lot of times used the agitation of the Holy Ghost. I call of the Holy Spirit. He called us to be agitated with where we are and what we're doing to it, not to poking us with a stick. Right. Kind of Move on. like, like they say about eagles, they start moving the down, uh, the feathers from the nest to expose the, uh, the barbs of the rough part of the nest to get the, the baby eagles to finally fly. And that's one thing that's happening. I was just so frustrated with a lot of stuff that was going on and not going on. And just, uh, then I have my mom, I'm dealing with all this stuff. And it just, uh, but I've been saying for years that God, I know God wanted me to travel and go into other churches. And I, I've been saying that for years. And I think that's not the best way is the agitation. Mm -hmm. But I think God uses it when we get comfortable. All right. And we just, you know, sure. I love this. This is all right. The church is doing fine. I can die like this. It ain't what I called you to. And so he starts allowing us to get frustrated, agitated. So we can say, okay, God, what do you want me to do? That's a little thing that I went through in the last few months. Then I finally came before the church. Like I said, I probably didn't handle it right because I was a mess. I probably lost some people over it because they thought, is he, if, uh, I came here for him. He's supposed to be my best. He ain't going to be there. I never right. never meant to say I may have said it. it evidently, I made it sound like that because wow. uh, a lot of people thought it. And, uh, but I never meant to say that I was leaving the church. I was saying I'm backing off, that she's stepping up more. Because we've been co-pastors for years anyway, but they've never seen her really as mm -hmm. co-pastor. She's kind of the first lady. Mm -hmm. She's the pastor's wife. That's not how the dynamics were supposed to be. So, you know, kind of saying, if she comes to visit, don't ask her when the pastor's coming. Because mm -hmm. pastor just came. It's all about you, Jesus. It's all about you. If you'd like to reach out to Reverend Hightower, you can email him at mhightower55 at yahoo.com. In the corner, back by the woodpile, it's produced by a closet, a pocket, and a suitcase. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter by looking up Spun Counter Guy. If you want to say hi or send us nasty words, you can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com and you can find this podcast on iTunes and Stitcher and podbean.com we'll see you on the flip side